foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. And I'm Marcy Winograd of Code Pink Anti-War Radio. Welcome to our Code Pink Radio Show, presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, and many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting, 107.9 FM and KCSB 91.9 FM in Santa Barbara. You can also hear us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And do check us out at our website, codepink.org, where you'll find the latest on our campaigns and all of our radio episodes. Today on Code Pink Radio, we bring you speeches from the live stream of the Washington, D.C. March 18th anti-war protest to call for a ceasefire and peace negotiations to end the U.S.-Russia proxy war in Ukraine. On the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq, which killed an estimated million Iraqis or more, thousands of U.S. soldiers, Code Pink, the Answer Coalition, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and the United National Anti-War Coalition held nationwide protests not only in Washington, D.C., but also Chicago, San Francisco, Detroit, Seattle, Albuquerque, Phoenix, Los Angeles, and elsewhere. Now, let's go to that live stream of the D.C. March minutes before protesters arrived in front of the White House holding coffins to represent the victims of U.S. militarism. What's up, Washington? Look at all the beautiful comrades in the crowd today. As mentioned before, my name is Jorge Rocha, and I'm on the steering committee for DSA's International Committee. I'm coming down from New York. Where, where are my New Yorkers at? Hell yeah. Wow. 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. Surreal, isn't it? 20 years. 20 years of this country whose response to an attack at home is to destroy the rest of the world. 20 years of illegal invasions like those of Iraq and Afghanistan. 20 years of special military operations, interventions and assassinations throughout all of Latin America, the Middle East, Africa, East Asia, pretty much the rest of the world. 20 years of imposing unilateral coercive measures against so-called enemies of democracy, which is just code for countries that oppose U.S. interests. And yes, 20 years of sowing discord in the world to where we are right now with this war. If this war continues to escalate, 
then I fear, as everyone else has been bringing up, that we are heading right toward nuclear confrontation. Mr. President, we are here in front of the White House today to make sure you can hear us loud and clear. End this war. <laughs> Mr. President, do you think we're fools? Do you think we're dumb when you talk, when you see this nonsense about a weather balloon in the sky? Blowing it up over the Atlantic, making a whole media circus about it? Stop this nonsense cold war against China. And speaking about interest else in the world, Mr. President, listen to the people of Okinawa. Close the bases. There, everywhere and anywhere. Mr. President, listen. Listen. Listen to the people of all the countries and the suffering that they're going through. Leave the people of Venezuela and Korea alone. Enough is enough. Mr. President, tear down this embargo against Cuba. 60 years is too long. Finally, Mr. President, we have two words for you. Free Palestine. Free Palestine. Next, I want to bring up to the stage another longtime fighter for peace who has been all over this country recently telling the truth about what's happening in Ukraine. They've tried to shut her down, but she won't be shut down or shut up. We're very happy to welcome here from Code Pink, Medea Benjamin. So raise your hand if you're a Putin apologist. That's what I'm called all over the place. And you know why? because we want to stop the suffering and the killing, because we care about the Ukrainian people, because we care about the soldiers on all sides, because we want to end the war. We're not Putin apologists, we are peace lovers. We are people who want to see an end to war. So, this is a guy here asking who invaded. You know, I am condemning Russia till I'm blue in the face. Russia should not have invaded Ukraine. It made a horrible mistake. And the U.S. makes a horrible mistake by throwing more fuel into the fire, right? How many billions of dollars of weapons are we going to keep sending? It's been... $46 billion of just weapons already. So we send all these different weapons and it's never enough because there is a stalemate, because it is not a winnable war, because this war won't be won on the battlefield. It will be solved at the negotiating table. And I want to know why my own government is sabotaging negotiations. I want to know when they were close to getting a peace accord back in March, why my government came in and said no. I want to know when just recently the Chinese came out with a peace plan, why did our government say 
absolutely ridiculous. And I want to know, in front of the White House, why Biden can't pick up the phone and talk to Putin. When we have a war that will only be solved at the negotiating table, I want to know why every single Democrat voted for $40 billion to keep this war going. I want to know why, when now the AP polls say that only 48% of Americans, despite all the war propaganda, only 48% of Americans say they want to send more weapons. Why almost every member of Congress and President Biden sends more and more weapons. So what we want to say is that the people in Congress and the White House are not representing us. We have to be louder. Join us with Code Pink and Peace in Ukraine as we march through the halls of Congress demanding that they represent us and call for peace talks. Do you know that right now in Congress the word negotiate is a bad word? It's ridiculous. So join us as we pressure the White House and Congress and join us as we echo the sentiment from around the globe, especially in the global south. Just like President Lula from Brazil said when he was pushed to send weapons to Ukraine. You know what he said? We don't want to join this war. We want to end this war. So let's say it loud. No more war, peace talks now. No more war, peace talks now. No more war, peace talks now. Thank you. So up next we got Margaret Kimberly. Give it up. We always like our journalists doing the right thing for the right cause. Welcome Margaret from Black Agenda Report. to have uh, been asked to speak for the United National Anti-War Coalition. Give it up for you, Nick. You know, I had deja vu 28 years ago. At this time in March, I and I'm sure many of you, we marched to try to stop the invasion of Iraq, a war crime. Now, yesterday, the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin, saying he's a war criminal. But uh, Bush and Cheney walk free. Yep. So do Clinton and Clinton and Obama and Trump and Biden, who've all gotten a pass after they killed people in Iraq, Afghanistan, Serbia, Libya, Somalia, Lem Yemen, and Haiti. We're, we're, I know there's so many countries, right? But we want to end that. And the theft of money, $100 billion for Ukraine to wage this proxy war. And we don't want a war against China either. 
So you got to watch some of these folks who claim to be against the war in Ukraine. They want to go to China and get us in the, uh, another uh, fight against a nuclear-powered nation. But that's going to be true as long as we have imperialism. There's going to be one long forever war as long as this is an imperialist country. That's why we have an $800 billion defense budget. But we don't have health care and housing as human rights. The two are antithetical. You cannot have human rights respected when you have a country that is one gigantic war machine. And I just want to say also, we have to think about the other wars, AFRICOM, SOUTHCOM, INDOPACCOM, as the U.S. tries to control the entire world. But we will liberate ourselves from war when we liberate ourselves from the oligarchy. Thank you so much. Power to the people. And stop Cop City. Thank you. Give it up one more time for Margaret Kimberly. I hope y'all are reading Black Agenda Report and shout out to the United National Anti-War Coalition as well for helping to build this demonstration and bring people from all across this country. And we really are from every single nook and cranny of the United States. People have come from so many different, from Maine. I mean, people have come from hours and hours, Atlanta, you know, the, the Miami, Los Angeles. So I thank you all, and I'm not gonna list them all. I know it's too many, and I'm sorry I forgot you. North Carolina, I saw some folks here. Detroit, LA, all of them. Philadelphia. Okay, I hear you, Sister Sancho. I know. Next, I want to bring up Brian Becker, the National Director of the Answer Coalition. Sisters and brothers, I want to talk a little bit about what's going to happen the rest of today. Because what we're doing today, I believe, will be remembered as something that's quite historic something very profound, a commitment, a determination on our part to build a new anti-war movement at a moment when the forces within the military-industrial complex and the leadership of both the Republican and the Democratic Party have, without debate, adopted as a consensus position that the U.S. should be prepared and prioritize major power conflict. This means that the war in Ukraine, which did not really begin simply with the Russian military intervention on February 24, 2022, but many years earlier than that, including the fascist-led coup d'etat of February 2014 to bring Ukraine into NATO, this is a proxy war but it's a dress rehearsal for a bigger war that the U.S. intends to wage to weaken Russia, to topple its government, to, in, to go to war and have confrontation with China, to topple the Communist Party of China, inside of China, and just think about the dimensions of the madness here. The United States could not defeat the Taliban in Afghanistan after 20 years. So let's go to war with the People's Republic of China 
and Russia. Think of the think of the magnitude of that craziness, and yet there's no debate. Look at the mainstream media, the corporate media. They'll describe this demonstration as the far left or Russian apologists or something like that to demonize us like they demonized the Russians, like they demonized the Chinese, like they demonized the Syrians, like they always demonized the Palestinians, like they demonized the Iraqis and the Cubans and the Venezuelans and anyone who wants to be free and independent from the empire. So we're at a crossroads, and today I hope all of you will march together with us. We're going to bring coffins. We're going to do this in a few minutes, so be prepared for this march. This is what's going to happen the rest of the day. We're going to take these flag-draped coffins, Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Palestine, Russia, Ukraine, Yemen, Syria, and people from the United States as well who are the needlessly killed, murdered people by the empire during the past 20 years. And we're going to first go to the White House and we're going to say to the White House, you are guilty. You are guilty. You are responsible for these deaths. It's not the Syrians, the Palestinians, the Russians, the Chinese. It's the government that speaks in our name. And then we're going to go a few blocks away to the Washington Post, the neocon media that promotes lies, that spoon feeds war propaganda, and say to the Washington Post, we know who you are. You're not journalists. You're an echo chamber for the war machine, and you too are guilty for the deaths of all of these people. That's a short march. It's a short march, but then we're ending with an indoor event at the beautiful and historic New York Avenue Presbyterian Church a place where the forces for abolition against slavery gathered in 1860 and 1861 and during the Civil War. And we're going to hear additional speakers, including Noam Chomsky, who is the renowned speaker and linguist who has led so much in exposing manufactured consent. So sisters and brothers, we're going to have a couple more wrap-up speakers here. We're going to carry these coffins to the White House. We'll have a short ceremony there. We're going to march to the Washington Post and then to New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. We need all of you to stay with us for these next 90 minutes to show we mean it. We're determined. We're going to build a new movement. This movement is not ending today. This movement is beginning today. It's the most important movement that could possibly be built. Down with the war makers. Down with the war machine. Fund people's needs, not the war machine. And let's stand together to say no to colonialism, no to racism, no to the oppression of women, 
no to the oppression of the LGBTQ community. Say yes to the disabled movement and all of those sectors who are under attack by the same wretched capitalist system. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Voices from the March 18th anti-war protest in Washington, D.C. to demand a ceasefire and peace negotiations to end the war in Ukraine. On the other side of the country, in Los Angeles, hundreds of protesters, young, old, and in between, converged on CNN in Hollywood to tell the news network to stop parroting Pentagon propaganda about an unprovoked war in Ukraine and to feature guests who challenge U.S. foreign policy. Wei Yu, coordinator of Code Pink's China is Not Our Enemy campaign, also had a message for President Biden. Today, uh, in a city called Monterey Park, yeah. uh, a very, like, so large, vibrant, loving Chinese-American community. And um, as you know, uh, in January, there has been a mass shooting that took away 11 lives. And uh, the government also took his own life afterwards. And it's only the, the system of violence that we are experiencing uh, domestically and also abroad. And um, on Tuesday, President Biden was actually in Monterey Park delivering an address uh, of uh, gun violence. And it's just so interesting that he this address uh, on a tragedy that devastated Chinese American community, it just came one day after President Biden sold submarines to Australia to cure our family at home in China. This, the, all of this ongoing oppression, uh, uh, random aggression towards China, we see it not just like from the militarization of Asia Pacific, we see the manufacture of consent at home too. We brought all of these balloons today to remind everyone of the, of the frenzy that we experienced back in February. They said it was a spy balloon. Um, it's been a month and they still haven't released any evidence, any recovery uh, whatsoever. They are lying and the people is catching up with their lies. Right before our eyes, U.S. NATO containers war crimes. Empire leaders of the day trying to hide the crimes away. War in the name of peace. But we know what to blame. The bloody crusades. tell you that I blame myself first, should have done my homework, should have realized the lies before I participated in them. So this symbolic act, this throwing of the medal, is for all those people out there who are wondering why we're doing it. Do your homework. Let's fear the lies and hate to justify regime change. World control is the Marcy Winograd, welcome back to Code Pink Anti-War Radio. Next up, former CIA analyst Ray McGovern, a featured guest on a webinar co-hosted by Code Pink and Humanity Rising. McGovern's intelligence work spanned seven presidents, from President Kennedy to President George H.W. Bush. 
As an analyst on foreign policy, McGovern would synthesize material given to him on a daily basis and then brief senior White House advisors with his conclusions. When he retired from the CIA, Ray McGovern co-founded Veterans Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, VIPs for short. Hosts Jim Garrison and Jody Evans posed a question about the war in Ukraine to Ray McGovern. How did we arrive at this dangerous moment in history? After the Berlin Wall fell and there was great disarray in Eastern Europe, uh, James Baker, a really smart, clever lawyer from Texas, was our Secretary of State. And George H.W. Bush sent him over to Moscow to talk to Gorbachev and Shevardnadze and tell them what we saw in terms of reshaping the security arrangements in Europe. Big deal, huh? Soviet Union was about to fall apart. Gorbachev was in great need of military. It was a great need of economic aid. Uh, He had given up pretty much all pretense to try to dominate the world or even try to dominate Europe. So what was the deal? Long story short, Posner went into it yesterday, but I'm going to give you a more colloquial version that I get from Jack Matlock, who was ambassador at the time and was there. Here's James Baker. Uh, Michel, um, we'd like to see a, a, a reunited Germany. Now, as an aside here, when I heard that a reunited Germany was being discussed in real terms, my reaction was, <laughs> okay, maybe I saw too many World War II films when I was little. But the whole idea of NATO was to take the US in, the Russians out, and the Germans down, meaning separate, not reunited. Now, here, here I am an American. Uh, yes, I was alive through all of World War II, in which we lost something like 440,000 troops, all troops. Uh, many of you know that the Russians lost over 26 million Soviet citizens. So there's a little disparity there as well. So when Gorbachev is is asked to, well, we'd like a reunited Germany, uh, I imagine, (laughs) I imagine he shuddered the same way I did. Uh, Probably his reaction was even more enhanced because let's face it, Russia has this history with the Germans, right? (laughs) So what did James Baker say? He said, we like to see a, a reunited Germany, and uh, let's see, how would it be? You asked about a, a quid, a call for this quid. How about, uh, how about this? Um, we won't move NATO uh, one inch to the east. Cross my heart, hope to die. Well, it was a bitter pill to, swell, to, to swallow a reunited Germany. The notion that NATO would stay where it was, that was pretty damn attractive. And so in reaction, in response to this suggestion, after sleeping on it overnight, Gorbachev and Shepardnazis came back and said, now, not one inch, right? And and, 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 and,
and you're going to give us some economic aid to get us out of this terrible situation. Yeah, sure. And um, and, and you want us to pull out the 230, 240,000 troops we have in East Germany? Yo, yeah, we have to do that. Okay. All right. We'll, 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 we'll do it. Now, as Posner mentioned yesterday, that was not written down. Now, Jimmy Baker is a lawyer, all right? Now, a lawyer gets stuff written down. My father was a lawyer, and I can't tell you how many times he told me, Ray, get it in writing, get it in writing. <laughs> so do you think that Jimmy Baker forgot to get it written down? I don't think so. I had a chance to ask one of Gorbachev's closest and most important advisors during that time. Uh, I was in Moscow about eight years ago. His name was Kuvaldin. He's a professor at Moscow University now. Kuvaldin uh, Viktor Borisovich. So I said, Mr. Kuvaldin, um, we were having drinks actually as a little reception. So would you just tell me why that agreement was not written down? He looked at me, he said, well, Mr. McGovern, I'll give you the usual reasons. Germany didn't have buy-in yet. Uh, the Warsaw Pact still existed, for God's sake. Uh, but then he looked me straight in the eye. And he said, Mr. McGovern, the real reason is we trusted you. That's the background. Okay? That's 1990 when they trusted us. Let's fast forward now to 2008. By then, NATO had doubled in size, even more than doubled. Guess where those countries were? The new countries. Oh, they were all more than one inch to the east of East Germany. Huh. Now, in 2008, there were rumors that Ukraine and Georgia would become a part of NATO. And uh, William Burns, who happens to be the head of the CIA now, was called into the foreign ministry in Moscow. He was our ambassador there. And uh, Sergei Lavrov, uh, the just recently appointed foreign minister, he's still foreign minister. Lavrov says, Mr. Burns, do you know what NET means? <laughs> Burns will be, I think so. Well, NET means NET. It's a red line, Mr. Burns. No Ukraine in NATO, no Georgia in NATO. Do you understand that? Now, Burns played it straight to his credit. Then, that was then, now is a little different. So what did he do? He sent back a cable. Now, if I've seen one cable from Embassy Moscow in my career at CIA, I think I probably saw about 7,000 or so, okay? Was it real? Of course it was real. It was, it was released, released by WikiLeaks. And what did it say? Title was, Net means net. Moscow's red line on Ukraine. Whoa. What happened? That was the 1st of February, 2008. Three months later, at the NATO summit in Bucharest, the final declaration on the 3rd of April said, Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. Hmm. 
Okay, wow. <laughs> so, uh, to his credit, Bill Burns played it straight. That was then. Send his cable back. He even dared to add a ambassador's comment. They're allowed to do a little comment if they're the ambassador. And they said, you know, I have to point out that uh, actually Russia has its own strategic interests as well. And so we have to appreciate that. So they're entitled to have their own security interests. Now, that sounds pretty mealy mouth, but you didn't say that to a Cheney. A Cheney. Well, also Bush was around and Condoleezza Rice. And they just look, we're exceptional people. We can do what the hell we want. So we'll make Ukraine and Georgia part of NATO. Well, that was the red line and that was crossed. So what happens? What happens next? Well, uh, Jody talked a little about this, or I guess it was Phyllis talked about the the war in Syria, the open U.S. war in Syria, that didn't happen. <laughs> now, uh, Phyllis's little list of talking points played a role. So did the fact that the British Parliament, for the first time in 735 years, said no. <laughs> we don't want a war against Syria. Okay, maybe it was less less years than that. But it was really un unusual. It was very much unlike what those British toadies did before the unprovoked war on Iraq. Okay, so what am I saying here? I'm saying that uh, Obama was between a rock and a hard place. Many of us, if memory serves, uh, Phyllis was with us out in front of the White House demonstrating um, answer coalition, everybody else saying, no war on Iraq, no war on Iraq. We were making such a din that the Obama press conference had to sort of end for a while, move to, to, uh, uh, to quieter spaces. And then I was the next up to speak. Then I got a little message from somebody within, okay, somebody in watching the president. Uh, Obama says he's going to go to Congress. He's not going to launch a war uh, all by himself. <laughs> now, that was pretty hard to believe, given all the history. So in my little talk, I said, if this is right, my God, then we then we've really been able to prevent the worst. How did, how did it turn out? It turned out this way. While John Kerry was militating before the Senate Armed Services and Senate Intelligence Committee, we got to do this war, we got to do this war. It was all based on a false flag sarin attack they blamed on Bashar al-Assad. It was really our own guys that did it, <laughs> okay? So what happens? Well, Putin uh, messages the White House and says, we're looking forward to President Obama coming up to Petersburg for this summit, which began just a few days later. So Obama goes up and he doesn't have Kerry with him. Doesn't have anybody with him. And he has a chance to talk to Putin. And Putin says, now, Mr. President, nobody wants open war in Syria. We know that you're doing a little covert war, but nobody wants you to be attacking with all these uh, tomahawks and all those missiles and stuff. And we've arranged with the Syrians uh, to have all their weapons of mass destruction, namely their chemical weapons, destroyed under UN supervision 
on a U.S. Uh, ship because you all have specially outfitted ships for such destruction of chemical weapons. What do you say? Now, Obama didn't want a war. I said, are you sure? Yeah, listen to the Syrian foreign minister to, to, tomorrow. He's going to get on the TV and, and announce that. And so that happened. Obama said, it's a deal. Now I don't have to do a war I don't want. And later, Obama told his unofficial biographer, Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic, that he was very proud of that decision, that he made it against the advice of all his advisors, uh, that it, he had hewed to the, the Constitution, and that uh, he avoided playing what Obama called the Washington playbook. This was a big deal. It was such a big deal. I'll tell you a very, very short personal experience I had with this. I used to be on BBC every now and then, no more. I had an interview at the top of the CNN building uh, on, uh, I think it was, well, it was this key week uh, in the first, first week of September, 2013. So I came out of a little booth that I was in having finished my interview. And I opened the door a little too too sharply and I almost knocked over this little, little guy who's right in front of me. And I, oh, hey, what, what are you doing? I thought, it was Paul Wolfowitz. <laughs> no, I said, thank you, God, for teaching me the principles of nonviolence. That really came in handy right then. I looked at Paul. I said, oh, sorry, Paul. He says, oh, you know me? Of course I know you. Uh, well, watch, be more careful. I looked across the room. There was Joe, Lu Joe Lieberman. Now, you had, to believe, you had to see this to believe it. No more flashy yellow red ties. They were all dressed in sober black and dark blue ties. They looked like a funeral, for God's sake. It looked like one of their mothers had just been run over by a Mack truck. They're looking at the boot, boob tube and somebody's explaining what this coward Obama had done. The Syrians had done these terrible things and Obama didn't have the guts to follow through with the war. Then they go into Lieberman and, and Wolfowitz go into this special thing, do a little interview. Watching on the, <laughs> I hung around watching it on the, on the tube. And the first thing Lieberman said is, is the president had, doesn't have to go to Congress to get permission out of a war, but peace. No, no, no. So McGovern takes out his little constitution that uh, Dennis Kucinich gave him, and he underlines the portion of uh, Article 1, Section 8, and he meets these two jokers in this ornate thing they call the elevator shaft. Okay, <laughs> They come across the... They say, hey, Paul! Hey, Joe! Ray McGovern! <laughs> no. You have to realize the ethos in, in Washington is uh, you never, if somebody looks important, and I was a little younger, if you look important, then you don't want to have anybody think that you don't remember them, right? So, oh, hi, Ray, how are you? I said, yeah, uh, Joe, uh, I, I, I have a constitution here. I, I ripped out Article 1. Would you go home and read it? You've been in the Senate for, what, 20, 20 years or so? And you don't know that only Congress, the House of Representatives, can, can, can declare war. So, and then Wolfowitz is slinking away, you know. <laughs> Paul, Paul, come back here. But he wouldn't come back. And then 
this beautiful, beautiful six foot two woman appears and she surveys the scene and she says, oh, gentlemen, I'm so sorry. Her job was to protect these two jokers from the likes of me. And she had failed. I simply said, you know, I'm so sorry, too. Why do you let these two jokers on that don't even know what the Constitution said? Well, went down the hill from there and CNN has not asked me on again. But it was worth it. Now, that's just to give you a feel for how distraught, how angry the neocons were that they didn't get their war against Syria. I mean, you know, it was really bad. It took them six months, six months to overturn the government in Kiev, the government of Ukraine. And that's where this current scheme of events starts. We know that the US was the prime mover here. I mean, hello, uh, that intercepted telephone conversation in late January of 2014 shows that under, now under Secretary of State, now she, then she was Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Victoria Nolan, telling our ambassador in Kiev, um, we have Yats in, in, in waiting. He's going to take over as, a, as prime minister. Uh, the Nazis were going to put in the background for the while. Uh, and, uh, and Payet says, you know, what about the EU? They, they're going to like this. And she says, F the EU. You know what the rest of the F word is. Now, one of the things that was sort of fortuitous is that two days later, Victoria Newland apologized. Not for the coup, <laughs> but for saying F the EU. I guess she wanted them to believe that she didn't really feel that way. Of course, we know now given everything that's happened in the last year or so, that those words still apply to our exceptional people who are running our policy. So that was the Maiden. Now, what those new, those coup leaders that people put in, in place by the coup, what they said immediately is we want Ukraine, of course, to be joining NATO and would like to, wait, we're going to ban Russian as a uh, as an official language now i think about 35 percent of ukrainians spoke russian as their native language they always were able to do that always as an official language so then there were more draconian things people sent from kiev down toward crimea and so forth so the crimeans first and foremost said you know we want out of here we don't want to we don't want to bow to the coup government and you know that story, you know how uh, they were annexed after a plebiscite, they were annexed uh, by Russia. Now there were people in the Eastern Ukraine in the so-called Donbas uh, provinces of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk, who were equally distraught at being put under the heel of this very right extreme government that Newland and Pyatt and, and Senator McCain and the others put in, in power. And they don't want any part of it. And so they, they declared independence. And they went to Russia. They went to Mr. Putin and said, uh, you know, what we really like is if you'd uh, annex us like you did Crimea, why not us? And Putin, for whatever reason, said, no, not going to annex you guys. But we'll help you. And, of course, the, the Russians did help. 
Donetsk and Lugansk uh, fend off the Ukrainian army, but they couldn't fend off artillery fired at them from the Ukrainian side of Donetsk and Lugansk. 14,000, these are reliable figures. Uh, uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation Europe figures. 14,000 Russian speaking people were killed since 2014 until recently when 5,000 more were killed. By whom? By Ukrainian artillery. Now, I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't know that the artillery was stepped up during the first, the last part of January and the first part of February last year, 2022. But if you look at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe figures, you can see it. You couldn't see it real well then. You can see it now. It looked very much, very much as though the uh, uh, the Ukrainians were about to move the forces that had been trained and equipped up to NATO standards by NATO into the Donbass clean out these Russian-speaking people and exert our control right on Russia's border. Now, that was part of the calculus. Uh, that is something that uh, Putin himself didn't really realize until pretty late, uh, I would say, because there were there were signs of, uh, of rashness in, in what he did in February. But there was that. Uh, there was also the accretion of power by the extreme right, uh, the Russians call them neo-Nazis. The Russians know a Nazi better than I do. Let's call them neo-Nazis. Uh, but there was also some other big factors. And one of them I'd like to dwell on just for a second has to do with a country on the other side of the world, China. On the 4th of February, Putin went to Beijing to help launch the Winter Olympics. Now, the two countries had already said that their alliance, their strategic relationship exceeded, exceeded the normal military alliance. On the 4th of February, a very serious pronouncement was released by both parties saying, there's no end to our cooperation. We're in it together, okay? Now, Putin, was there with Xi. Uh, this part that's coming now is speculation on my part. I wasn't a fly on the wall, but this is how I think the discussion went. Uh, comrade Xi, uh, I may have to invade Ukraine. They're about to attack. We just have recent intelligence now that the, the Ukraine forces, they're really well equipped, well led now. They're going to attack my Russian compatriots in, in Ukraine. Uh, the, the talks have come to naught. We tried to get them to talk about offensive strike missiles on the periphery of Russia. They won't talk about that anymore. And there are already holes in Romania and Poland that can accommodate. Tomahawk cruise missiles, or even hypersonic missiles when the U.S. finally gets them. So, so uh, Comrade Xi, I, I think I may have to may have to invade Ukraine sooner rather than later. 
regime. You mean after the Olympics are over, right? Oh, yeah, of course, after the Olympics are over. The day after the Olympics are over, Donetsk and Lugansk are finally recognized as independent countries by, by Russia. The day after that, the Russian authorities approve uh, the incorporation of Lugansk and Donetsk. And uh, you have a request from them to help them out. And then another day and you have the Russian invasion. Now, uh, Phyllis was absolutely right that this was provoked. I mean, I could adduce lots of other things. I will adduce one more thing because not many people know it. On the 21st of December, 2000 and 2021, uh, Putin got up in front of his, all his generals and admirals. And he said, you know, the immediate threat is from the emplacement of strategic strike missiles in Romania and Poland. If they're, if, if they, if the so-called ABMs make no sense positioned where they are, uh, if they're substituted for by Tamagok, that's the way, <laughs> The way Putin says Tomahawk missiles or hypersonic missiles. In the first case, I have seven to 10 minutes warning. In the second case, five minutes. I don't want to have that. So we need a written agreement this time. We need a written agreement. Make sure that doesn't happen. Now, the next part is a little bit uh, my interpretation. I saw those faces on those admirals and generals. <laughs> and I could see them thinking, Vladimir Vladimirovich, uh, wasn't the ABM treaty written? I mean, wasn't the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty written that actually didn't just ban but destroyed a whole class of nuclear-tipped strategic weapons? I mean, give me a break, uh, uh, Vladimir. We don't care if it's written or they don't care if it's written or not. Uh, that doesn't do it for us. That was the 21st of December, 2021. Okay. Nine days later, on the 30th of December, the White House gets a call from the Kremlin. Uh, Mr. Putin would like to talk to Mr. Biden like today, <laughs> like right away. And the White House is flummoxed, you know, they say, wait a second now. They talked a couple of weeks ago and they set up a negotiation process in Geneva. It's going to start on the 9th and 10th of January. I forgot why do they have to talk about it? Why do these two people have to talk? Well, uh, the Russian said, please. And to his credit, Biden said, okay. Now, what came out of there? The readout says, Mr. Joseph Biden said that Washington has no intention of deploying strategic strike weapons in Ukraine, period, end quote. Wow, well, those are the negotiations off to a good start. Uh, Ushakov, one of, uh, one of Putin's main advisors in this area, was waxing eloquent about it the next day. New Year's Eve was a big celebration in, in Moscow, but when the negotiators got to the table, they forgot about it. <laughs> Now, I have to say, probably uh, 
Biden woke up the next day on New Year's Eve and and his advisor said, "Now, Joe, you didn't you didn't really have you didn't really promise that, did you?" Oh yeah, it seemed well. Forget about it. Forget about it. So, lastly, maybe on this substantive part, I'll simply say that um, there are such things in realpolitik as existential threats, and when a a major power experiences senses a major threat to its existence, an existential threat, it does what is necessary to remove that threat. Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst, on the events leading up to the war in Ukraine. I'm Marcy Winograd for Code Pink Anti-War Radio. Thank you for joining us on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, and KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. Join us at CodePink.org and PeaceInUkraine.org so we can organize and mobilize for peace. You think they're foes, they're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group Since years before, been raking in billions And itching for more It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say Code War, we say Code Pink It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say Code War, we say Code Pink Code Pink for freedom Code Pink for peace Code Pink to hunger was not Iraq, but Iran. They feed you lies, don't want you to think. They say code terror, we say code pink. They feed you lies, don't want you to think. They say code terror, we say code pink. Code pink, freedom. Code pink, for peace. Places we meet, they curtail our speech, our movement, our 